And uh, I want to talk to you today about an impossible assignment. And recently I've been reading uh, about Jesus, which is great if you're a Christian to read about Jesus. So recently I've been reading about Jesus out of the book of Luke, and I've been looking not only at what Jesus says, but also at what Jesus does. Because, you know, last week we heard that Jesus is our forerunner. Who was here last week? Awesome. So last week we heard that Jesus is our forerunner. He has gone before us and done many things ahead of us. And I think that what we are supposed to do is to go after Him. So what He did, we should follow Him and do that. And so He gives us impossible assignments. I think this is something that God likes to do. And every impossible assignment is met with three things. Every impossible assignment is met with three things. One, inadequacy, two, promise, and three, power. It's met with our inadequacy, and then God generally will make a promise to us. And then God's power begins to be unleashed, and everything He's promised starts to unfold. You know, Jesus, He asked His disciples for the impossible. He would get them to do things that just without the power of God would be absolutely impossible. And we get to read about those stories. I think that too often in life, you know, people settle for what we're able to do. If you understand what I mean by that. Instead of pressing into something that would be impossible, we settle for what's able. And I think that when we settle for what's able and you don't start to press into what would ordinarily be impossible, you live a certain kind of life. I think that all of us, we just get to decide what kind of life we want to live. If you want to live the kind of life where the best stories and the best testimonies belong to other people, then settle for what's able. If you want to live the kind of life where it's that church down the road that has that amazing testimony, if you want to settle for those incredible stories, the things that happen in Africa or over there or somebody else, then all you need to do in life, you just settle for what's able, but don't press into what's impossible. Of course, that's not what Jesus modeled, is it? Jesus modeled a life where he just did impossible thing after impossible thing. And he did it because I think he was trying to teach us that you're going to come after me and I want you to do impossible things too. So he would um, gather people, he'd do impossible things, then he'd gather his disciples and he'd begin to teach parables. And I feel so sorry for these 12 guys that said, yeah, we'll follow you. Because they were in for such a ride. And they would watch Jesus and he would do incredible things and heal the sick and, and, and raise people from the dead. And they thought, that is awesome. That is so good. We love watching what, what Jesus does. And then he'd teach parables and everyone would get to the end of a story that Jesus would tell a parable and everyone's scratching their heads, including the disciples. They don't know what he just said. And so privately, of course, they'd come to him afterwards. Jesus, that was awesome. What did that mean? And he'd say, well, I'll explain it to you. And he'd tell them what it meant. And so I'm sure it wasn't lost on his disciples that these crowds, great crowds, were gathering to hear what Jesus said. And it wouldn't have been lost on them that the Pharisees, when they would begin to debate with Jesus, they didn't know what to do with Him. And they, they were lost for words also. And so they would be uh, standing there and watching these incredible things unfold. They thought, this is a great ride. This is going to be awesome. But the thing that the disciples soon learned was it wasn't going to last. <laughs> 
Jesus didn't plan on doing everything for them for the rest of their life. He was spending time teaching them something so that they could then go and do something like Jesus did. He was modeling something to them because then he'd go and ask them to do the impossible. And one time, I think we heard, well, I think we heard part of this story. Was it today or maybe in the prayer meeting? But one time he gets his disciples and they've traveled out a long way into the countryside. The Bible says that 5,000 people were following him. 5,000 people. And that's just the men. If you add the women and the children, this could be a crowd of Let's say 10,000 people. And 10,000 people have followed Jesus out and it's getting late. His disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, we should send these people away. I love that Jesus doesn't send people away. He says, we should send these people away because they're going to get hungry and they've forgotten, but they're going to need to go get food. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now, I don't know if they pulled out their pockets at that moment to see what they had, but they did not have enough to feed 10,000 people. So they took stock of what they had and they said, we've got five loaves, we've got two fishes. And they said, we don't know what to do. And so Jesus says, sit them down in groups of 50. So they do. Sit them down in groups of 50. Jesus grabs the fish and the loaves and he gives thanks to God. And then the disciples begin to hand out the bread. And hand out the, the, the fish and the loaves. And here's the incredible part. It didn't run out. And when they got to the end, they collected more, 12 baskets. They collected more than what they had in the beginning. Now, Jesus prayed the prayer, yeah? Where did the miracle take place? Who was handing out the food? The disciples. Jesus prayed the prayer but the food multiplied in the hands of God's people. It multiplied in the hands of the disciple. And this is once again, Jesus is going, look, I'm going to teach you something. I'm praying, but you are able to do these things. Last week, we realized that everything that Jesus did, all the things he did, he did those things not as God, but he did those things as man. And he modeled life as a man so that we could come after him and do those same things again. I want to tell you that Jesus loves sending people who feel inadequate for the assignment that God gives them. He loves to send people who feel inadequate. If you feel inadequate, if you feel insecure, if you feel like you're not able to do things that are impossible, you are just the kind of person that God is looking for. And if you let Him, if you let Him, He will give you an impossible, possible assignment. And in truth, he already has. Here's my proof, the Great Commission. Now, what did the Great Commission say? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast demons out of people, preach the kingdom of God. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast demons out, preach the kingdom of God. So here's something we can settle for. We can settle for preaching about the kingdom but if we're going to complete the commission, if we're going to do everything that God called us to do, there's a whole bunch of things that we actually need God for. And what I want to look at today is the lives of three men who felt the same as what we do often, who felt inadequate, and their response in the conversation that they have with God. So we're going to look at three. The first is this guy, Moses, and you probably know him. 
And uh, just to give you kind of a clue of what's happening here, Moses uh, is out in the field one day. He's out in the wilderness. He sees a bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. I'd probably go check that out too. So Moses comes and as he gets closer, God says to him, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. He goes uh, to, to the burning bush and it's God speaking to him. And God says to him, I've seen the affliction of my people in Israel and I'm sending you to go to Pharaoh. Now this is his response. He says, but Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And this is God's response. He says, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. I know it's impossible, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Do you notice that the sign comes after the miracle? This will be the sign that I've sent you. When you come out of Egypt, you'll worship me here. He has to actually do the thing first before he gets the sign. The sign comes after. So Moses is still feeling insecure and he, he has more excuses. He says, but Moses says to God, this is about a chapter later, he says, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He had a stuttering problem. He couldn't speak properly. So he was worried that when he gets before Pharaoh, he wouldn't be able to do what God had asked him to do. And the Lord said to him, is this not the best check ever? Like checkmate. Who made man's mouth? Like he actually made man's mouth. No one can say that but God. I have a mouth problem. Oh, that's okay. I make them. (laughs) I I have a mouth problem. That's what I do. I, I made the first one. I created yours. It's okay. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. And, and this is my favorite part. If God was slipping a joke in here, this is it. All right. He says, I have a mouth problem. He says, well, I will be with your mouth. I have a problem. I'll be with you. My mouth has a problem. Okay, I will be with your mouth then. Look, whatever makes you feel more comfortable... I will be with wherever your inadequacy is. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it great that God will be wherever your inadequacy is? I have a mouth problem. That's okay. I'll be with your mouth then. And then I'll teach you what to speak. This is what God does. When he gives people an impossible task and they feel inadequate, I'm not up to this. He says, wherever your inadequacy is, I make you a promise right now. And we know, if you know the rest of the story, I think most everybody does. He goes to Egypt and we see great power. We know that came later. Call of Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah speaking. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold. Now, can I just stop you? Never say behold to God. He already knows. (laughs) Whenever you say behold, it's like you're telling him something that he doesn't already know. God, you may be aware of a few details that I would like to clue you in on before you call me to do this. I think you got the wrong guy. Lord God, behold. Well, I don't know how to speak. Everyone's got a mouth problem. I don't know how to speak for I'm only a youth. It's too young. And the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. And he says the same thing that he says to Moses. And he says, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. 
And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. He makes him a promise. And if you know the rest of the story, and then Jeremiah goes on and he's, and he's a great prophet and speaks to the nation of, uh, of Israel. I want to focus in on one more, just one more. We're going to look at this one in a little more detail. The call of Gideon. This is such a great story. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, I think, uh, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. He wasn't just hiding it from the Midianites. He was hiding completely from the Midianites. And the reason that Gideon was hiding from them is because the Midianites were oppressing Israel. And they were worried that if they were to do these things out in public, that they'd attract the attention of the Midianites. Now listen, you don't take wheat and begin to thresh it around in a wine press. If you suffer from hay fever, terrible idea. It's like it's flying everywhere. There are husks and bits of wheat. and It's probably going up your nose and all that stuff, right? And so you just don't do it in closed spaces. But he's doing it because he's afraid. Can I tell you, God hates it when his people are afraid. He's not happy when his people are afraid. And you know why? Because God didn't create us to be afraid. That's something that we learn. God never created us to be afraid. In fact, I think Grant said it this morning, he hasn't given his people a spirit of fear. And in truth, if we're ever going to be afraid of anything, we should be afraid of God. And when I say afraid of God, I'm not speaking about living in fear of Him, worried about what He's going to do to us. The fear of God means to behold Him, to see Him as He is. And as we begin to see God as He is, the, uh, the, the other fears that begin to constrict us and rob us of the life that Jesus promised us, those things begin to dissipate when we see God as He is. He doesn't want His people to be afraid. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And you sort of think, mighty man of valor. I feel like I need to have a moment with God where I say, Behold, because I'm going to have to show God something here that he doesn't already know. He's hiding. He's afraid. The whole nation's afraid. They're all afraid of, of what's going to happen, you know. So how could he say, O mighty man of valor? Here's another lesson that you can learn about God right now. He doesn't call you by your insecurity. He calls you by what he sees in you. I love that God lives in past, present and future. And so even though sometimes we feel maybe overcome with insecurities or fears or whatever it is that plagues us, God sees us as we could be when we listen and lean into Him. He sees what we're going to become. And He begins to, and I've said this a couple times recently, call forth the great things that are inside of people. And He says to Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and the Lord has given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. I'm not seeing any might yet, but he says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Do not I send send you. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds? 
One thing I guarantee you is that Satan will always try to convince you that God is not with you. Because it's the one thing that he's most afraid of. The thing that Satan is most afraid of is that you become the people of God. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to become the people of God. So he will do everything he can to convince you. And it's so evident in what we're reading. The lie is clearly there. The lie is if God was with you, this wouldn't have happened. It means that every time something happens, the natural conclusion then is that God must not be with us. And it's almost as if Satan's been speaking into Gideon's mind and saying, you know what, if God is with you, this wouldn't have happened. So since it's happened, God is not with you. He doesn't want to be with you. He's rejected you. I know he works with other people, but he's not wanting to work with you. And then he starts to remember Egypt and think about the stories that their fathers recounted. He thinks about the incredible things about oceans parting and leading people through and feeding people pillars of fire, just the most incredible stuff. And he's heard those stories and he's lived in a time of complete oppression where they're struggling. They're just struggling to the point where they're beating out wheat in the wine press. See, this is what too many people will say today. I know God did that then, but I don't think God feels like doing that now. I know God worked with him, but God doesn't really want to work with me. That was a different time back then, but now is different. He wanted to do that. He doesn't want to do this. Too many people, when they're not seeing the things that they're hoping for, they instantly can jump to that conclusion that maybe God doesn't want to work with people anymore the way that He did. He did something miraculous in your friend's life or in your family's life, but not with you. No, He missed you. He missed you. You're not seeing the things that you're hoping for. You're not seeing the things that you're asking for. Can I just explain to you something about how the kingdom of God works? The kingdom of God works based on authority. The word kingdom is where we get the word king's domain. Domain is where we get our word dominion. And under the king's rule and reign, the things that we hope for become accessible. Under his rule, under his reign, the things that we pray for, they begin to happen. They begin to be worked out. Dominion, authority works every time. It works every time. You imagine if someone was writing you a ticket, a police officer pulls you over and halfway through writing you a ticket, he says, I'm not sure if this is going to work. You'd think this is crazy. If you write the ticket, that's it. I'm getting the fine. Because that's the way authority works. And the kingdom of God works the same way every single time. And so he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, and he presents excuses just the way that Moses did, just the way that Jeremiah did. Here's the insecurities. Here's the you know, inferiority complex that's coming to the surface. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, what does he say again? I will be with you. Every time people feel inadequate, God says, but I'll be with you. 
Every time people feel like they're not up to the task, His promise again, reassuring them, it's okay, but I'll be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He makes this promise because Gideon comes up with two excuses. You don't understand. I think you've got the wrong guy. First of all, I'm the lowest of the low. We have the weakest clan in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. So out of the weakest, I'm the weakest of the weakest. I'm the lowest of the lowest. And God comes to him and says, you're a mighty man of valor. It is amazing to me how people will begin to talk themselves out of what God would be prepared to do in their life because they don't think they deserve it. Because they don't think that God is able to overcome maybe their insecurities or maybe some of their issues. Do you know, earlier this week, I went to a coffee shop. I go to this coffee shop quite frequently. And there's a guy that serves me in there. And he is always grumpy. He is in a bad mood. He gives terrible customer service, but that's okay. So I'm there and I'm getting a coffee. And he comes over to me. And I didn't want to buy a a whole bowl of, of chips I just wanted something to sort of tide me over to the next meal. So he comes over and he says, can I get you anything? And I said, can I just order one of the sides? Like, I just want a piece of avocado and maybe a few of these sides. Can I order a side without ordering the main anything? And he sort of looks at me and he smiles and he goes, yeah, I guess you can do that. And I said, is that a weird thing to ask? Like, is this the first time you've heard this? Is that a weird thing to say? Can I just have the sides? And he goes, nah. I said, listen, when you lie to a person, keep a straight face so that I don't feel so insecure like I've just done something really weird and you think that I'm a weird person. He's laughing. And then he says, yeah, it's just that I broke my hand earlier this week. That has nothing to do with anything. (laughs) I replayed the conversation over in my head. I said, "I I still have no idea why he told me that. He said, yeah, it's just that I broke my hand. I said, oh, okay. So I'm sitting there and straight away, what did I say to him? Can I pray for you? Can I pray for your hand? He gives me this look like I've got two heads. And he looks at me and he says, what? I said, oh yeah. I said, look, I I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm praying for people. I'm seeing them miraculously be healed in front of me. Can I pray for your hand? I think God is going to heal you right now. He looks at me. He says, I'll think about it. I'll come back. I said, okay. So he goes away and uh, he gets the sides and he brings them back. I've got my earphones on at the time. And as the sides come and they're served to me, I slip the earphones off straight away. I said, will you let me pray for you yet? And he says, what? I said, would you let me pray for you yet? He said, no, no, look, this thing is my fault. This is, I broke my hand. This is, I'm happy to wear this. I said, look, I said, there is only a couple of ways that guys really break their hands. (laughs) It's normally punching someone in the face or punching something that's harder than your hand. It's normally how people do it. So I kind of got the idea that this is what's going on. So I said to him, look, I understand what you're saying. I said, there's only a couple ways somebody breaks their hand. And if you've got a whole heap of shame attached to why you did that and you're feeling really bad about that today, I want you to know something that God will still heal you whether it was your fault or not, because that's what he does. And he wants to heal you. So can I pray for you? He says, oh, let me think about it some more. I said, okay. So he goes away and then I didn't see him again. I get up to the counter and he walks over. I think he's feeling uncomfortable, but I am loving this. 
moment and I'm smiling at him and he's putting it through and he looks up at me and he sees me smiling and he says, hey, listen, I want to thank you for what you said before. I said, that's okay. I said, look, I said, if I can pray for you and heal your hand, what kind of person am I that don't even offer it? He goes, that made sense to him. He liked that. So then I said, look, I don't know if you believe in God. He says, no, I do believe in God. I said, oh, that's so great that you believe in God. Let me tell you something about the God that I serve. Whether it's your fault or not, he'll still forgive you. Especially when it's your fault, he'll forgive you. He said, I need to forgive myself before I can let other people forgive me. I said, oh, I know. People say that kind of thing all the time. But can I tell you something? That kind of thing really holds people back in life. When they don't forgive themselves, So they don't let God operate in their life because they think they don't deserve it. He said, thank you. He still didn't let me pray for him. I'm so disappointed, but I can head back there next week. If it's broken, there's a good chance it'll be like that next week. So let me have another crack at it. I'll meet you here next Sunday morning. I'll let you know what happens, okay? People talk themselves out of what God wants to do in their life because they think they don't deserve it. But let me tell you, the God that we serve sees the issues that we've got, moves past them, calls people when they, He knows that they've got problems. And if we let Him, He will give us impossible assignments that we will walk out, that we will begin to move in, that we will begin to do. The truth is we can't heal, we can't save anyone except for the fact that God has called us to do it and given us His authority so we can begin to roll out His kingdom across the globe. And in answer to Gideon's question, Gideon's question is, how can I save Israel? Gideon, you can't, but God can because with God, all things, not some things, but all things are possible. And if, if we could just get that idea that all things are really possible, by the Spirit and by the power of God, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. If we could get that, I think that we would begin to shift the world that we see. You know, God's solution in the Old Testament every time was the same thing. I will be with you. But can I tell you something that He has done in the New Testament? This is where we live. In the Old Testament, He said, I would be with you. Now He says, I'm going to live in you. First of all, He would be with us. But now because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, receiving the forgiveness of sins, God said, I'll make my home inside of your heart, that I'll come and live in you. And so once what was unique about some of these people, about Moses and Gideon and Isaiah, there's another guy who said, I've got a mouth problem. And God came and touched him and healed him. What was once unique about those people is now become common. The person, the weakest of the weak, the lowest of the low in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Is that not what Jesus said? He who is least in the kingdom is still going to be greater than John the Baptist. And the truth is, is that God's kingdom has already come. It's already here. And if you're saved and you've given your life to Jesus, you're in that space right now. And when you're in that space, God begins to speak and send you out to do things and accomplish possible assignments that you would not be able to do without his help. What does he do? He sends out the 12. Jesus sends out the 12. And what did he say? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach the kingdom of God. By the way, do you notice that he says, heal the sick first, and then he says, preach the kingdom later. You understand that people don't need to be saved for God to heal them. 
absolute total strangers who have no relationship with God can be healed in a moment when God decides to do something, when you decide to do something about that, when you see somebody sick or you start to pray for them, heal the sick and then preach the kingdom. How much do you reckon healing opens people's hearts to the kingdom of God, to the possibility of what God is able to do? So he sends out the 12. They come back. They're super excited. What does he do later? He sends out 72. Do you know what he said to them? Heal sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach kingdom of God. They went out and did it. They're really excited about it. Oh my gosh, you should have seen what happened when we did. It's like we say stuff and it happens. Jesus is like, I know, it's why I sent you. Jesus dies, is resurrected, seated at the right hand of his father. But before he left, what did he say? He gathered his disciples and he said to them, what did he say? I know some of you are listening. <laughs> Heal sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach the kingdom of God. And the reason why Jesus did that and modeled that is so that the disciples would learn something and they'd teach that to their disciples and they'd teach that to their disciples. And eventually someone older than you, more experienced than you would come and teach it to you. But what has happened is over a period of time, the church has kind of settled not for what's impossible, but for what's able. Because when we settle for what's able, we can explain the things that are a mystery to us. And we settle for what's able. You are called to an impossible task. You are called to do impossible things. But you will meet with promise and power on your way to completing the most impossible things that Jesus is asking you to do. And I'll tell you why. Because God qualifies the people that He calls. He qualifies those whom He calls. And the reason He's calling so many people, this is not unique. If you get one thing out of today, can it be this? That you understand that this is not for a select few. This is for all of you. And the reason He's calling so many people is because the season that we're living in demands it. The time that we're living in demands it. Look, here's the truth. Jesus is coming back. And before He comes back, our job is to heal sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach the kingdom of God and get as many people to understand that God loves them, give their lives to Him before He comes back. It's very simple. It's very simple. So let's not intellectualize it and make it something that it's not. That's what He's asked us to do and that's what He's actually given us authority to do. In fact, here's something that Jesus said. Jesus said that the time was not right. He said it's ripe. Didn't he say that? He said that in, in, in John chapter 4. He says, uh, what does he say? He says it like, Do not look at the seasons and say that the time of harvest is four months out. Lift up your eyes and see the kingdom of heaven. Lift up your eyes and see it and understand that the grains are white, that the, grain, that the wheat is white, that it's ready for harvest right now. In other words, don't wait for the time to begin to do what you know is right. Don't wait for the time. The time is now. The time is now to do something. Jesus is coming back one day. The time is now. Let's not wait. Let's not delay. God has released power to His children because the season demands it. 
Jesus came to a tree and the tree did not bear Him fruit. He demanded fruit, it didn't give it to Him. He cursed the tree. They came back the next day, the tree was withered. Why? It was out of season, but Jesus wanted fruit. God has given us the authority and power to produce fruit all the time. We don't have to wait for a special season. We don't have to wait for a special time of harvest for this to begin to roll out. He says, I want it now. And He's given us authority. He's given us power. He's given us capacity to do these things. The prophet Amos said that a season would come when the plowman would begin to overtake the reaper. When the plowman would overtake the reaper. Now, I don't know how many fields you've ploughed in your time. I don't know if you're familiar with this kind of agricultural language right here, but let me explain to you. There's a time when you plough. And what comes next? Yeah, you plant the seeds and then you wait and then the sunshine and the rain comes and whatever you planted grows. And then the reaper comes along and the reaper harvests what's taken time to grow. But what the prophet Amos said, the prophet Amos said, there is a time that's coming There is a time that's coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper, when the seasons would begin to overlap. And can I tell you right now, we are living in a season where the season of heaven is beginning to overlap the earth. A season of heaven is overlapping the earth and it's happening around the world right now. And God is wanting you and selecting you and choosing you to be a part of that. And what that means is that the most impossible things, the most impossible assignment, no matter how crazy, no matter how outrageous it is, is completely possible because heaven is beginning to open up. So here's what you need to think about and do today. Here's what you need to do. You need to let your inadequacy be consumed by God's promise. I will live in you and I will make my home in you and I will give you authority to do the most outrageous things because now is the time. The season demands it. It's required right now. There are people that don't know the things that we're talking about and God is looking to us. You notice that in the the example that I gave you out of when Jesus feeds the 5,000, He's not wanting to create a scenario where all of His people step back and we say, God, come and do everything. He's behind us, pushing us forward, saying, I've asked you, please do it. And God's people, they arise, they realise, they awaken to it. And you need to just let God's promise of what He wants to do in your life consume your inadequacy so that His kingdom can begin to roll out across the earth. This is what I believe. I believe if you believe God, He will open a season of heaven over your life. And the most outrageous things that you ask for and pray for and hope for will begin to happen in and around you. Can we stand together this morning?